At Baptist Health South Florida, it's our mission to care for you when you're injured or sick and help you stay healthy and fit. Welcome to the Baptist Health Talk podcast, where our respected experts bring you timely, practical health and wellness information to improve your family's quality of life. Welcome Baptist Health Talk podcast listeners. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Fialco. I'm a preventative cardiologist and lipidologist at Baptist Health's Miami Cardiac and Vascular Institute, where I'm also Chief of Cardiology at Baptist Hospital and Chief Population Health Officer at Baptist Health. According to information from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, in general, men are less healthy than women. Men have more heart disease, chronic liver disease, alcoholism, kidney stones, bladder cancer, and other chronic illnesses. And their life expectancy is shorter. So what can be done about this? Each year in June, we observe Men's Health Month to raise awareness about men's health issues and to encourage men to take their health seriously for their own sakes and for their loved ones. I had the pleasure of hosting a recent episode of Baptist Health Resource Live program that looked into this issue. It was a great discussion with experts, including Dr. Gillian Generoso, who's an internal medicine physician with Baptist Health Primary Care, Dr. Ahmed Eldafari, a urologic oncologist at Miami Cancer Institute, and Dr. Jason Perry, a sports medicine physician with Baptist Health Orthopedic Care. Let's hear what they had to say. Um, Gillian, let's, let's kick it off with you. Um, generally speaking, it's said that men tend to pay less attention to their health than women. What are some of the health issues that are unique to men? When you have a man in your practice, in your office, what are the kind of things you think about or we have to realize are specific to men um, that need to be addressed? Actually, a national survey showed that men tend to visit doctors less in general. They also, have, they also tend to um, have uh, less wellness visits per year. They also tend to get less flu and pneumonia vaccines. So despite that, um, coronary artery disease remains the leading cause of death in men. And interestingly, strokes tend to occur at younger ages in men compared to women. Now, um, uh, the survey also reports that there are higher rates of smoking and alcohol use in men. So that's really interesting. Um, and then, of course, the, um, the issues that are very specific to men are things like prostate cancer, testicular cancer, and low testosterone. So as part of a medical visit, um, do you review all those things routinely with a, a male patient? Yes. Um, uh, so it depends on their age. There are age-appropriate screening measures. Um, so typical things I do at a wellness visit is definitely look at their blood pressure, their weight. Um, I review their lifestyle, like smoking, exercise, alcohol use. Um, and then we also do screening tests. So that would be labs to screen for high cholesterol. Um, and if uh, you're age 55 and over, uh, a prostate screening would be appropriate, colorectal screening. So, um, Ahmed, turning that over to you, it's a good segue. When we talk about screening tests, um, these are tests that you don't do because a person's coming in with a complaint. These are things we generally do just to see if there's early evidence of something that could be managed before it becomes severe. Um, you know, Gillian mentioned a few, but where do you see the greatest value in screening tests in men? Most men, as we both, as we're all saying, don't go to the doctor routinely. Where where do we get the biggest um, um, benefit from screenings in men? So, um, for example, like one thing Gillian pointed out is prostate cancer. So, uh, in general, after the age of 55, it's recommended to get a PSA test as well as a rectal exam uh, to early detect prostate cancer. Uh, this age is um, 
55 is a general age for the entire population, but patients with um, family history of prostate cancer or African-Americans who tend to have more aggressive prostate cancer, sometimes we test them or screen for prostate cancer earlier, um, as early as 45 or, or 50. Um, um, so prostate cancer is a very slow-growing cancer, very curable, and if it's not curable, it's very, very treatable. And early detection, with early detection, no one should actually die from prostate cancer. What other type of screenings would you would you say would be relatively important for them? Um, uh, other screening for uh, mainly for testicular cancer um, is the self exam for uh, young young adult like teenagers and early twenties. And uh, the self exam that's done one once monthly is very very important for uh, detect testicular cancer. And compared to prostate cancer, testicular cancer is very very aggressive cancer, very fast to growing. But the good side is it's very curable. Just the, the fact that it's very fast to growing makes it very sensitive to chemotherapy and it's a very curable disease, even when it's spread. What, what, how, what, when you see men with testicular cancer, what's the usual presentation? Do most come in because they've done self-exam and they notice something? Is it picked up on a primary care exam? Where, where, what's the trigger or pathway that most men come in with uh, what is testicular cancer? Uh, the first thing you tell me that you notice something growing of the testicle and um, it's more often it's ignored first, but as that thing keeps growing, uh, then, then they come seek medical attention. But uh, what I see that they see it growing for at least a few weeks, sometimes up to a few years before they come to see me. Um, and the thing also, they, they ignore it. For, one of the reasons they ignore it, it's painless. And testicular cancer is always painless, even when it's spread. So, so just to put some minds at ease, what, what's the workup for testicular cancer? Because that might prevent some men from getting checked out. What do, you, what do you do if it's suspicious? If it's suspicious, I would first get an ultrasound uh, to see, distinguish that there is an actual mass, solid mass. Um, uh, coming off that testicular, can testicular tissue. And if it is in fact, like it is concerning for testicular cancer, uh, then I would do blood markers, blood tests to check for tumor markers that can distinguish the different types of testicular cancer. Then after that, I would obtain some imaging studies like a CT scan of the chest, abdomen and pelvis to see if it has spread uh, beyond the testicle. Um, Gillian, back to you. We'll get we'll get to you, uh, uh, Jason, soon enough. But Gillian, you know, we, we we talk about men not wanting to go to the doctor, you know, um, and I and I see it and live it. You know, too tired, too busy. There's always a reason to to delay things. Um, but we know how important it is, both for preventive purposes and to get things checked out. What kind of tips would you recommend for either an individual or more often a loved one to say? we want you to get checked out or how come you haven't gone to a doctor? Any, any type of recommendations you would have to um, encourage men to get themselves checked out for uh, regular uh, medical visits? So it's funny you say that because you don't know how many times, you know, I've, I've had uh, a man come into my office and I'm like, hey, so what's, what's your reason for the visit? And he's like, the reason I'm here is because my wife sent me here. So it's really funny. Um, a lot of times men seek care because they are encouraged by their loved ones. So it depends, right? So someone, someone might just need a gentle reminder. Others might need a little bit more of a nudge, like, hey, 
or this great doctor, and then still others, you know, they might need a little more than a nudge. And then, and then the partner might go, hey, you know, I think it's time for a checkup and I made this appointment for you. So it makes it, makes it easy for, for someone to go in um, when they're a little bit more proactive. Not that any, everybody needs that, but. Um, so obviously be supportive and, and give them a little bit of a, a nudge if necessary. And what's the proper first first exposure to medical care? I mean, we, we, we clearly expect primary care to be that, that foot in the door, so to speak, for a man to get a medical checkup, no? Right. So um, primary care addresses um, just general issues, general practitioner. So if you have um, a symptom or you just want a general checkup, it would start with a primary physician. All right, Jason, it's your turn. Um, we know, we know personally, you know, it's hard for men to open up and talk about certain things. There's the ego and the machismo and, and whatnot. But, you know, in your experiences and you're dealing with, with fairly active men and, and, and other with conditions, what, what tools do you use to get men to open up about the conversation that might otherwise be important for you to assess their medical condition, but they might not be comfortable to talk about? Well, that's, that's a great question. You know, I'm typically seeing people for problems that they're, they're very comfortable talking about with bones and joints and injuries and, you know, people wanting to stay active. But I think in general, this comes down to the environment in the office and the clinic, you know, establishing good rapport with your patients, having very good bedside manner, um, you know, getting to know your patients, being friendly, not feeling you know, that the, 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 uh, the visit is rushed. Um, you know, I think your patients really just need to know that you care. And if they feel that you care, they're going to be more willing to open up about things uh, that may be more sensitive. You know, I think oftentimes as physicians, we have an agenda, uh, things that we want to talk to the patients about, um, you know, things that we want to address with their health, but, you know, we need to allow time to listen to patients and, you know, hear their concerns and address them with empathy and compassion. And I think at the end of the day, you know, if you don't feel like a patient is opening up about something, you know, we just really need to ask specific questions and, and, uh, and not be shy. I think that's well said, given that comfort level, take the stigma away. I mean, Gillian, you mentioned early on alcohol abuse and substance abuse and how you have those sensitive conversations. I think in our space, we're dealing with obesity. Um, I, I always laugh in the cardiology space with erectile dysfunction, and I always try to diffuse it by asking my patients about it and making them comfortable with it. But whenever we get a call about the patient wants a refill but only wants to talk to you, we know it's a Viagra refill. So we always say, no, no, it's, it's, we established with it. It's a normal medical condition. You can talk to anyone about it. Um, anything you guys, um, Gillian or Ahmed, you want to add about that? What do you use in your in your relationships with men to get them to feel comfortable and opening up about um, things that might otherwise um, be difficult for them. Ahmed, any thoughts on that, especially in your life? Yeah. yeah, I think I, the main thing for me is to try and let the patient know that it's not just um, you or um, this is a, your problem. Let them know that it's a common problem. I see it all the time. Um, it's, uh, I think patients feel impaired sometimes opening up about something. They feel they are the only ones who have it. They are the only ones who have the problem, but they don't realize no one walks around talk about their problems or erectile dysfunction, for example. But here I see it all the time. So it's a lot more common than people think. And I think if they know that, they will open up more about it. So, so following up on, let's say, some of the 
the, the specifics that men may deal with that might be difficult to, um, not difficult, but might take a little extra work to kind of address. So Ahmed, speak a little bit about stress. And, you know, everyone has stress. It's not unique to men. Um, men may internalize a little bit better. Again, it goes back to that macho type of, um, I can take care of my own problems. Um, any thoughts that you have or any experiences regarding how to uh, address stress-related aspects um, of a man's health? Um, I think it's, uh, I try to encourage patients to, um, to open up more to family and friends and um, uh, about their illness and, um, and also I also offer them to uh, communicate with other patients who had the same problem. Um, maybe sometimes if they, if they communicate with other patients with a similar problem, and they get treated and they are doing well, they will, uh, that will be uh, relieve their stress. And I, almost all my cancer patients, I offer them to, uh, to enroll into the survivorship program. And uh, I had, I got a very positive feedback and uh, relief, um, psychological and emotional relief after um, going through this program and seeing other, talking and seeing other patients of their similar condition. So it's certainly something that that should be part of a discussion a man should have or the doctor should have with a, a, a male patient. Um, and, and Gillian, an extension of that to some degree um, is, again, going back to the, the pushbacks, et cetera, would be mental health issues. And specifically, we talk about anxiety, depression, or, or, or even worse things. So in your assessment, how do you, do you, do you sense there's a problem and then you tease it out? Or do you kind of address it in everyone just to see if there's an underlying component. Give us a little bit how you address those difficult behavioral health, mental health type conditions and may experience. Sure, so um, actually in, in my practice, we, we administer what's, what we call a PHQ, which is a, a depression screening tool. So we kind of standardize that for all visits. So um, you don't have to feel um, the, the pressure of bringing it up yourself. We, we do kind of screen you for it. And of course, patients come to me um, with such symptoms. And a lot of times they have never talked about it with anybody else because um, there's that stigma or they, they grew up in a family where, you know, mental issues were kind of poo-pooed. Um, so I, I talk to them about it. I talk to them through them about it. Um, I explain what depression or anxiety might, um, how it presents and how it's treated. Um, and then really when it becomes an issue is when the, when their functioning is affected, are your symptoms um, affecting your relationships at home or with your friends um, or at work? Are you, are you getting into more arguments or is your productivity affected? Um, if that's the case, then, you know, you might have something more than just stress or, or the blues. It might be something um, that will need more uh, to be addressed. I think that's something to call out. So it's one thing to say someone has some depressive episodes or going through a down period of time or are nervous about something. That's not always pathological, right? In, in other words, it's not like I shouldn't talk about it because they're going to think I'm sick. The conversation, as you said, is... There are different levels, different components. Maybe, you know, maybe it's natural or you, it'll pass. Is that is that fair to say? I mean, is that part of your assessment? Right. So I, I generally ask about the duration of their symptoms. Um, you know, if it's something that's going um, on daily for 
uh, more than a few weeks, like maybe a month or two months, and it's really affecting their functioning, that um, I think that needs to be addressed. Um, Jason, let's let's turn over to again. Uh, I think a really important topic, which we could probably do a whole Facebook Live about, and um, that's exercise and the importance of being active, staying active. Talk a little bit about you know again from a, a focus of, of of men's health. Um, why is it important to stay active? How can we motivate people? It's always our days are full. We're tired. What what's your experience regarding? Well, first educate us regarding the benefits of staying active and exercise. And then how we can motivate men to become active who may not be as active as we'd like. Yeah, that's great. I, you know, obviously I, I'm seeing people for orthopedic related issues and I'm talking about activity with every single one of my patients. And, you know, I think at the, the surface level or, you know, what most people recognize is, you know, um, exercise is helpful for things like weight loss, things like decreasing body fat or, you know, improving, uh, you know, lean muscle mass, but the benefits extend you know, well beyond those things. And, you know, the laundry list is is huge, but some of those would include things like improved cardiac health, decreasing the risk of heart attack, stroke, improving things like blood pressure, raising our good cholesterol while decreasing our bad cholesterol, um, prevention of type 2 diabetes, or in somebody that has type 2 diabetes, perhaps, um, you know, eliminating it or improving our uh, uh, blood sugar control on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, as we just mentioned, mental health, uh, I think exercise has been shown to be very helpful um, with mental health in reducing the risk of both depression and anxiety. Irregular exercise can help improve our sleep, improve our balance, uh, prevent falls, um, prevent fractures by, by improving our bone density. Um, it's been shown to help with brain health, memory, uh, there's tons of things uh, reducing uh, one that I see commonly is reducing pain in uh, joints of patients that have arthritis. Um, you know, in terms of, of, of motivating, I, I think, you know, motivating patients to exercise can be thought of, you know, like motivating patients to do other things like quitting smoking where, you know, like as the, that list in itself is motivating, but as a provider, we know that, you know, we can't force our patients to, to be active and we can't get everybody to be active the way we want. But I think that, you know, regularly at each visit, you know, we should be assessing our patients' physical activity levels, um, assessing their willingness to be active if they aren't already active. And then from there, we really need to help our patients set some, you know, some goals and those goals need to be realistic and then provide them with, you know, real life ways to meet those goals. And that could be you know, physical therapy or even something like an exercise prescription. So another follow-up to that, and again, I, I, I mentioned to the viewers how important this is. Um, if someone's going to start an exercise routine and whether they do on their own or with an exercise prescription or following something, would there be any kind of warning signs that should make them say, wait a minute, I better get checked out? And a follow-up to that is, you know, avoiding traumas and stuff. Are there certain things you would go through with them as a motivator, but also just just pay attention type of thing? Definitely. Um, you, know, the, you know, there are definitely things that you should see your primary care doctor or, uh, you know, or cardiologist before you get started in an exercise program. Certainly, you know, people that haven't exercised in a long time, um, you know, have any type of chest pain, shortness of breath, dizziness at rest, or with, you know, light levels of activity should be evaluated by 
a physician uh, before engaging in a program, um, you know, those with a history of heart disease or, um, you know, arrhythmias or, or uh, you know, kidney disease, you know, these might be uh, patients that want to just discuss with their primary care providers or their specialists who they follow with for some guidance on what they can and can't do. So I think obviously there's a common sense component and kind of follow your body. And if you're feeling something's not right, you know, get it checked out and make sure it's not a sign of something. So this has been a great conversation. You know, we clearly didn't talk about the importance of diet and various other things, which we know are very important in the interest of time, but they're, they're certainly don't, the viewers should not use what we're talking about as exclusive of anything else. Um, Gillian, hopefully not putting you on the spot, belly fat. Um, can you speak a little bit about the significance of, of the people, men more commonly, who actually gain weight in the belly as opposed to other parts of their body? Uh, we circumference is or, or central obesity where uh, the fat is mainly around the abdomen. That's associated with obesity-related um, disease like hypertension, diabetes, and then also links to um, cardiovascular disease. So that um, that's um, one way we look at that. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate that. I always say when I lecture and whatever, it, when the belly is the first part of the body that comes into my exam room, I know it's someone who we're going to have to have a, a significant talk about, you know, health and improvement and avoiding diabetes and heart disease and all those other things. To our listeners, if you have a comment or suggestion for future topic, please email us at baptisthealthtalk at baptisthealth.net. That's baptisthealthtalk at baptisthealth.net. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening and stay safe. Find additional valuable health and wellness information on our resource blog at baptisthealth.net slash news. And be sure to interact with us on our social media channels for live and upcoming events. This podcast is brought to you by Baptist Health South Florida, healthcare that cares.